worship with you today uh, at WPC as we continue our series on beloved hymns. And today we've arrived at Amazing Grace, arguably the most recognizable hymn to the average uh, person in America, church-going or not. Yet even though the song has been played and sung countless times in countless churches for centuries, it remains a timeless hymn for the church. Today, we will explore this beloved hymn in conversation with David's prayer from 1 Chronicles, as well as the second lesson from Ephesians that describes the theological significance of the hymn's central theme and the core of the Christian faith, grace. I invite you to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the second chapter of Ephesians, beginning with the first verse. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. John Newton, an Anglican priest, wrote our hymn today as a way to illustrate a homily he wrote for New Year's Day in 1773 on the passage from First Chronicles, which we heard in our first lesson. Its original name was actually Faith's Review and Expectation, and it didn't even have a tune originally given to these words. It wouldn't be until 1835 when its namesake tune was crafted for it and it became a favorite hymn of the Second Great Awakening. Yet what most people might remember about this hymn is not its occasioning or tune, but rather the story of John Newton who wrote the hymn. Now, to be fair, the story is often embellished a bit, but Newton was a sailor, and after a dishonorable discharge from the British Navy, became involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Following a conversion experience, he abandoned this horrific work and eventually became an Anglican priest as well as an ardent abolitionist, working alongside folks like William Wilberforce. Newton apparently ministered well into his 80s, and when questioned about retirement, he apparently quipped that my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Many modern interpreters have committed a whole lot of ink 
to show Newton's hymn as part of his own story, from his own wretchedness and sin, to experiencing grace and redemption in his ministry and abolitionist work. But the commentary for our hymnal argues that it's more likely that Newton, as a pastor, writes this hymn as an outline of one's typical spiritual journey, a journey that moves from sin and despair to grace and faith. You can just hear it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's not to say that there isn't connection with Newton's own story. Rather, what he tries to show in the hymn is that it's not just his story. It's the story of every Christian, of every person who experiences the grace of God, moving from a feeling of wretchedness to blessedness, from lost to found. This universality of the spiritual journey expressed in the hymn is witnessed in the many ways this hymn has been sung throughout the centuries. How it's been celebrated, used in worship. Given Newton's shameful past, it is particularly powerful to see that Amazing Grace found a meaningful place among the spiritual sung by those enslaved. It also has found a sacred place in the worship of Native American communities, as when you turn to the hymn in our hymnal, you'll see that it's been uh, um, translated into Choctaw, Creek, Navajo, Cherokee, and Kiowa uh, uh, languages. Yet this hymn continues to have a sacred place in the musical expressions of worship today, with numerous arrangements and tunes to these words uh, by contemporary worship groups as well. My personal favorite is the church camp rendering of Amazing Grace to the tune of the classic rock song, House of the Rising Sun. I'm guessing some of you are trying to sing it in your head now to see if it works. Trust me, it does. Our exploration of this hymn, its poetic and powerful expression of the spiritual journey of all of God's children, leads us to the question at the heart of the hymn. What is grace? Grace is one of those churchy words that pastor types like me say a whole lot. Yet we don't stop nearly enough to really unpack what this vital word of the Christian faith really means. The Hebrew word ken is the most common word for grace used in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the Greek word kairos is the common word, both of which quite simply mean to be favored. The distinction of this kind of favor that makes it grace, however, is that this favoring of God is unmerited and unconditional. Our lessons are truly great examples of this kind of unconditional, unmerited favoring. In our first lesson, which inspires the hymn, David prays out of response to learning of God's favoring of him. He was the youngest son, the runt of the litter, the perpetual underdog of his own family. You can't blame David for thinking he was unworthy or at the very least unlikely to be deserving of such a high place as king. Yet the enduring story of scripture is of God choosing the least likely people to do the most amazing things. 
God continues to choose us. God continues to favor us in Christ. Even in spite of the many, many ways we fall short of who God calls us to be. That's grace. Our second lesson from Ephesians dives more into this theological significance of what grace means. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God. In other words, grace means God's unconditional acceptance of us as children of God. Not because we've earned it, but rather through the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Grace, in a theological, God-talk sense, simply means that God favors us, God accepts us, and God adopts us as children of God simply out of love through Christ. In a world that's dictated by merit, where we're always measured by our grades, what school we get into, our professions, our tax brackets, our class, grace means we trust in a God who accepts us as we are, warts and all. Grace means that God chooses to draw near to us and save us, not because we're great and we've done all the right things, but out of love. In a world structured and dictated by merit, sometimes earned, sometimes not, God chooses to act out of this unearned, unconditional grace that turns everything upside down we think we know about what is and is not fair. Newton's words witness to this truth and echo his own story. As he says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." We trust in a God who chooses us, who favors us, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but out of love. Grace is God's standard operating procedure. There's nothing we can do to make God love us any more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us any less. So how do we respond to this amazing grace that has saved a wretch like me and you, like our mothers and fathers before us? Last week, I shared that um, now that we're doing a little more singing and worship, I would be trying to introduce you to a complimentary hymn each week I think coincides well with our focus song. Most weeks, this, this complimentary hymn will be a newer one, uh, or maybe a less familiar one to you. But today we're going to look at another beloved hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, because it really helps us further understand grace as well as our faithful response to God's amazing grace. Come Thou Fount is actually an older hymn than Amazing Grace, written in 1758. Its combination of baptismal imagery and the nature of God's grace makes it one of my own personal favorite hymns. It's one that I sung to both of our kids while rocking them to sleep as babies, hoping to instill in them at a central core level that they are beloved children of God. The theme of this hymn quickly moves from praise like amazing grace, to experiencing God's grace in one's own journey of faith. The second verse says, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. 
And the third verse begins with the theologically loaded words, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. The irony, of course, is that while we are truly indebted to God's grace, our grace or our favoring by God is not conditioned in our repayment of this debt. So how do we respond? According to this hymn, as well as Amazing Grace, our faithful response to grace is by attaching ourselves to God in relationship. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Our response to God's amazing grace is gratitude, lived out in relationship with God and one another. Our faithful response to grace takes the form of extending this kind of unconditional love and grace to others. Yet these good works are not done in order to earn or merit God's grace, but rather out of gratitude for God's unconditional love for us. As Newton said, his grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me We'll get there. We'll sing it in a minute. As I said, friends, grace is a vital idea to the Christian faith, but one we need to be reminded of what it means and why it truly matters. Our hymns today certainly express this, but I want to share just one more image of grace that might prove helpful in our spiritual journeys together. Christian writer Frederick Buechner has my favorite explanation of God's grace. As he says this, The grace of God means something like, Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift, too. Friends, God has chosen us to be God's own beloved children. Not because of what we have done, but because of God's love for us in Christ. There's nothing we can do to make God love us any more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us any less. This is an amazing grace that makes us feel found when we are lost. May we respond to this grace by binding our wandering hearts to God, seeking to live lives in deep gratitude for the God who loves us just as we are to our very beings. May we reach out and accept this gift. May we share it with those in our midst. Amen.